Uh, so as you kids are getting down to the business of drawing, uh, for the rest of us, we're going to start diving into 1 John chapter 2. And it begins this way. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know that we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So in this idea of koinonia, the implication is that we're all interconnected. We're necessary parts of one another. And if that's hard or difficult for you to envision or picture, then maybe this will make it easier. I want you to envision the church like a Navy SEAL team on a mission, right? And so if you understand what naval SEAL teams do, especially when they're on mission, you understand that they're lean and that every person has a job that the rest of the team is counting on them accomplishing and that we have each other's backs. That's the implication of what a naval SEAL team on mission looks like. And what John is saying here is John saying that's what the church looks like. And when you sin, you undermine the team. And John's saying, you have the freedom to sin. We all have the freedom to sin. Just like on a Navy SEAL team on a mission, any one of the members can choose at any time to just go rogue. And what John is saying here is that when you do so, though, you have to realize that there are consequences, not only to you, but to the team that's counting on you. So don't sin. Don't break fellowship with God and don't break fellowship with your church in order to indulge your own selfishness, right? Stop putting yourself above the team and stop putting yourself or making yourself more important than the captain. You made this decision to accept Christ as your savior and to place yourself under his authority. And God will allow you to experience the blessings of that, but there is responsibility that comes with that as well. That being said, if you do sin, when you sin, because we're all imperfect, then God's grace and God's mercy is big enough to cover you, for you to experience God's forgiveness and restoration. And so Jesus, John is also sharing that the promise Jesus gives us is that even when you do fall, don't sin, but when you do, Come to Christ. Don't be ashamed. Just come to him and let him restore you and get back on the team and get back to obeying the captain. We need you. This is what life in Christ looks like. Verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is the old one you've heard from the very beginning. This old commandment to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it's also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already 
shining. If anyone claims I'm living in the light but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But if anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness, such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. John, in writing this letter, is now an old man, knowing that his end is coming soon. And his fondest memories are those memories of the time that he spent with Jesus. The things he saw when he was with Jesus, the things he heard, the things he experienced when he was with Christ. And so he knows that as my end is coming, especially since many of my fellow apostles and those, my fellow firsthand witnesses, they've either been killed or they've passed away. There's not many of us left. What John is doing is he's saying, I want to bridge these two generations together. And the first generation are the apostles and witnesses that saw firsthand what Jesus meant when he commanded his followers to love one another and to live in the light. When Jesus gave those commands, he not only told the disciples to obey them, but he showed them what obedience looked like when he went and he um, he spent time ministering to prostitutes, to tax collectors, to lepers, and to sinners. Jesus took the unwanted and the unfaithful and brought the light of the gospel into their lives. He showed them compassion, and he cared for them. And so these apostles and firsthand witnesses, they not only heard the command, they saw it being lived out in the life of Jesus. But now there's this new generation. So here's the first generation in witnesses. Now there's this new generation that over time has come to include even us. We are part of this new generation. And in this new generation, what, holds, what marks us in common is we never saw Jesus firsthand in the way that these apostles and witnesses saw Jesus firsthand. We came to faith by reading or being taught the gospel and the commands of Jesus. And so John is bridging this gap. He's saying these two generations need to come together. And whether you were a firsthand witness or secondhand learner, we're all part of the same fellowship. That's what he's talking about here when he's saying the old command and the new command. He's saying that whether you heard the old command directly from the lips of Jesus or the new command being taught by those who sat at his feet and learned from him, the message of the truth is timeless. It doesn't change over time. Loving your neighbor, loving one another is a command God wants us to obey throughout our lives. And obedience to Christ is also timeless. Living in the light is also timeless. If you hate, then you're walking and stumbling around and living in darkness. That is not the way God wants you to live. To love one another is a command that needs to be lived out as fully today as it was a command to be lived out fully in the days of Jesus. And that's what John is bringing together. He's saying it doesn't matter that we saw him personally and you have not. We're part of the same fellowship, co-heirs with Christ. And these commands that you've been given, they're timeless. Obey them. Verse 12, I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. 
I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you've won your battle with the evil one. I'm writing to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I've written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I've written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you've won your battle with the evil one. One of uh, the challenges of growing up is trying to understand what that means. And so an example of that is um, we have to define for a five-year-old what a five-year-old is supposed to know, understand, and do. If you're 15 years old, what is it that I'm supposed to know, understand, and do? If I'm 35 years old, what is it that I'm supposed to know, understand, and do? And we can go on and on, but you understand what I'm saying. At every age or stage of development in life, in our, in our country, in our world, there is an expectation for how you are to act, for how you are to be, for how you are to live at that stage of development. And for us, in our, in our world, it's defined somewhat by research, some by education, and some by cultural expectations. But everyone, there's an expectation that we fall within a range here. And if you're outside of that range, then you're a bit deviant. This is what John is saying, except John isn't using age as the indicator for your level of maturity. He's using this idea of your intimacy with Christ. Your, the degree to which you know Jesus will define whether you're a child in the faith, young in the faith, or mature. And it also defines what we are to do in that time. So I'm going to go through each of these stages and describe or, or, or expand a bit on what John says needs to happen at that stage and what defines you as being in that stage. So he starts with children of the faith. Now I'm confident that the wording used don't be detracted by because no adult wants to be thought of as a child, especially if we came to faith later in life. But what John is saying here is that if you're new in the faith, then you're like a child. It's not insulting, it's just simply a parallel that he's using. And so you're in the very early stages of spiritual maturity. And for you, in that stage, if you are new to the faith, here's the things you need to focus on. Forgiveness and knowing God. Forgiveness and knowing God. So let's start with forgiveness. You are forgiven. There's a great joy and excitement that comes from that first realization. But what happens oftentimes for young believers, those who are new to the faith, is sometimes we forget. Or those old voices start coming back, or the voice of the enemy starts coming back and saying, you never deserve this. Look at you. You still have these old habits that you brought in, and we can, we can get into these negative thoughts. And God's saying, no, 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 no. My grace and forgiveness and mercy is sufficient for you. You are forgiven. There is no sin that you've committed in your past. There is no wrong that you have done that is so big or so great that God cannot forgive. Jesus died to break the chains of sin on your life and usher you into freedom. You're forgiven. That's God's message for you. Even now, as a believer, when you sin, you are forgiven. Just don't stay there. And now what? Now that I, okay, so I know that I'm forgiven. What else? Know God, right? 
build the disciplines in your life necessary to get to know God. Learn how to spend time reading the scriptures on a regular basis. Learn how to pray. Get involved in the church and submit yourself to the leadership in that church, right? Trust what they're teaching you and leading you into learning. This is what you are to do. Don't be afraid to ask for help if you need it. That's what it means to be a child of faith, to know the Father. And then the other group, the second group that John talks about is those who are young in the faith. And for the young in the faith, God says, here's what marks you. God's word lives in your heart, and you have won your battle with the evil one. That's that's interesting, right? What does that supposed what is that supposed to mean? And and what John is saying is the difference between a child in the faith and someone who's young in the faith is that those who are young in the faith understand that we're in the middle of a spiritual war. And we have both the scars and the victories to prove it. You built regular disciplines in your life. You're consistent in your faith. And you know what it is to depend on Christ. And in the church, we know that we can count on you. That's what it means when when John's saying that you're strong, right? You're faithful, you're available, you're teachable. You're people in the faith that the church can count on to know that you know and understand your part. You will do it, and you've got our back, just like we've got yours. That's what it looks like to be young in the faith. So continue to press on and grow. And then the third category John talks about is this group that is called the mature, right? And the mature are the ones that you know Christ. That's how John describes it. You know Christ. Ginosko is the Greek word that uh, John uses here. And the implication of that word is this knowing of Christ is not simply head knowledge, but there's an intimacy in it as well. The implication is it's an intimate knowing. We intimately know Christ. The mature are those who know Christ intimately and are fully grown, right? We're not perfect, or the mature are not perfect, but they're living out faith in a genuine way that causes others who look at their lives to admire and say, I see them or view them as an example that I might even choose at times to follow. That's what maturity looks like. It's that you have the steadiness and the foundational faith and are living out the faith and commandments of Jesus in a genuine, authentic way and in such a way that causes the people around you to want to follow your example. That's the idea and the implication of maturity here. Children, the young, and the mature. John is describing, giving a picture of what, helping the church understand what it looks like to mature in your faith in a simple, practical way. Verse 15. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world, and the world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Church, Do you realize what the greatest obstacle is to your growing up, to your maturing? It's loving the world. It's your love for the world. 
Whether you're a child, whether you're a young person, or even if you're mature, the battle that you will constantly and consistently face is my battle against the world and the way the world works, my incessant craving for physical pleasure, and my longing for to have all of the things that other people have and I want, a longing to give ourselves credit and to take pride in our own accomplishments and in our own possessions the way the world does. Because, and the reason why we want these things is because we want to look good. We want to be admired. We want to believe that we can have it all, that we can have this great and growing relationship with Jesus, and we can have the admiration of the world. And John says, no, the two don't run hand in hand. They don't go together. They don't mix. You can't love Christ and also love the world. You can't desire the things of Christ and still desire the admiration, the recognition, and the things of this world. You cannot love them both, so choose. Oh, and by the way, as a reminder, this world, as you're choosing, this world and all of its stuff, it's fading, and it will soon someday be gone, whereas Christ is eternal. Verse 18. Dear children, the last hour is here. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved they did not belong with us. But you are not like that. For the Holy One has given you his spirit, and all of you know the truth. So I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. And who is a liar? Anyone who says Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an anti-Christ. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either, but anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. In this extended session, what uh, John is saying is stranger danger, right? We have enemies. We have enemies. Most of you have uh, probably never heard of Joseph Lister, but you probably should have. Uh, Joseph Lister was a British surgeon in the 19th century and a pioneer of antiseptic surgery. In fact, Listerine is the brand name that uh, is named after Joseph Lister. Well, in the 19th century, Lister was disturbed by the high proportion of patients who were dying from infections after surgeries. So again, he was a surgeon, and he's seeing many of them get infected after these surgeries and pass away. And the result is that he began researching the problem, and he operated out of this very unusual hypothesis. Lister's working hypothesis was that there are these microorganisms invisible to the human eye that we can't see that's causing these infections. Well, as you might expect, when he proposed his theory, when he proposed his hypothesis, he was widely mocked, even by the experts, especially by the experts in his field, who said, what you're proposing is ridiculous. There are things that we can't see that's causing infection and causing people to die, and it was discouraging. But Joseph Lister continued to pioneer that work and continue with his research, and that led to a number of antiseptic solutions that could be applied on wounds that killed these microbes. And what happened is that, sure enough, 
the result is as he began to put in practice the things that he was learning, applying antiseptic uh, in the middle of surgery and post-surgery is that the number of patients who died from these post-operative infections reduced dramatically. The world is stupid, right? Across, over time, throughout history, pioneers who were daring enough to think outside the box, who were willing to imagine a different type of world than the world we're currently living in, were almost universally ridiculed in their time. Until they were eventually proven right. And then we look back on them fondly and, and, and uh, glorify their pioneering spirit. So why should it be any different, and why should we expect any different in this world today when the world mocks this biblical idea that we have spiritual enemies, many of them which cannot be seen by human eyes, that are actively working to discredit our faith and to ruin our lives? Is that really any crazier than the idea that Joseph Lister proposed in the 19th century? It's not, is it? For those of you who have been paying attention as we've been going through 1 John chapter 2, what you might have noticed already is John has already listed three different types of enemies in this chapter. Sin is the first one. Sin is the enemy within, and we talked about it. We read it in verses 1 and 2. There's an enemy of the air, which John calls the evil one, which we talked about in verses 13 and 14, and saying that, that young people, those who are young in the faith, have seen victory against the evil one. And then finally, the world is the enemy around us, which we just covered in verses 16 and 17. So John has already shared three different types of invisible enemies, sin, the evil one, and the world. And now finally, in these passages that we just read, John shares their physical enemies as well, in the form of false teachers whom John calls antichrists. And what defines them as antichrist is that they're false teachers who claim that Jesus is not the Messiah, and they deny the Son while trying to hold on to their belief in the Father. And John is saying that's all inconsistent. And when they teach what is false, they're deliberately opposing God. And therefore, they're your enemies as well. They're seeking to ruin and destroy your faith and your lives. And then John says, but there's an antidote. And here's the cool thing. The antidote is the same regardless of whether or not your enemy is invisible or physical. And John shares it here, starting in verse 24. So you must remain faithful to what you've been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he promised us. I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you've received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you, so you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know, and what he teaches is true. It is not a lie. So just as he taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. The antidote that John shares to all these different enemies who are seeking to ruin your life Remain faithful to what you've been taught from the very beginning. Right? God's word is the source of all truth and the foundation from which we build our lives as Christians today. And so when the winds blow and the trials come and the enemy attacks and we get knocked off track, what John says is just go back to the beginning. 
Whenever you feel like you've been knocked off track, go back to the beginning. Return to the simplicity of the gospel. Just rediscover the foundation of God's word and build again. Rejoin God in fellowship. Fellowship with God means that God's Holy Spirit lives in you. So listen to him. Obey him because he's going to be leading you in truth. Remain in fellowship with one another and bear one another's burdens. So this past week, I was having a conversation. Uh, my wife and I were having a conversation with my son um, about the future. Uh, actually, more specifically, about his future. And uh, I would say it's been such a joy getting to know my son as an adult. Uh, it's required my wife and I to learn how to parent differently because he's still our son, but he's also a full-grown adult. And not only a full-grown adult, but a young man who I admire very deeply. And so we're having this conversation about the future, and during the course of that discussion, one of the things that he shared was that um, him wrestling with this burden. And the burden was that every time he imagined his future, there was a weight that came upon him because he realized that future needed to include other people, needed to include the idea of a family, or other people that he was laboring alongside, or people who trusted him, or even looked to him, uh, that he felt responsible for. And, uh, and when he shared this, my, my response to him is, uh, that son, you know that burden you feel? Uh, you're going to carry that for the rest of your life. You should feel that and carry that for the rest of your life, because it's not going to go away. And so there's too many people in the world today, too many men in particular in the world today that are irresponsible or choosing not to carry that burden. They don't want to carry it, right? They, uh, they don't want to be responsible for someone else. They don't care to be an example or a leader. They do whatever they can to not bear that burden, right? To avoid carrying that burden. But that's not you, son. Carry the load bear the burden. And what I loved about his response was, you know, and it wasn't like wholeheartedly like, yes, it was a bit reluctant, but, uh, but his shoulders relaxed and there was conviction in his eyes and he just took a breath and just accepted it and admired that about him. And I'm proud that he made the decision to say, okay, yes, I will bear it. And what I told him too is that What's going to happen is this, this burden isn't ever going to get lighter. As a matter of fact, it might get heavier, but what you'll find is over time, it becomes easier to bear because you accept it. It's part of your life. That's what John is teaching in this passage. That's the same idea. He's telling the church that there is a burden that comes from living faithfully in the truth. And church, you need to accept and bear that burden. It will be with you for the rest of your life. It's not a light burden. If anything, it might even get heavier over time. But as when you make that decision to accept the cost, to accept the burden of living faithfully for Christ all the days of your life, what you will find is over time it becomes easier to bear despite its weight because you've accepted this is part of what it means to live this life under Christ. And that is what John is saying here, accept 
the burden. Remain in fellowship with Christ. Remain in fellowship with the believers. And as you do so, he closes the, this chapter with these words. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so when he returns, you'll be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. So kids, it's time to wrap up if you haven't already. So finish up your pictures, write your name on them, and have your parents take a picture of your picture and send it into Awaken Q&A at gmail.com. And I'll give you a couple minutes to do that while I close out with these verses and with a couple of announcements. So I'm going to read that passage again because I don't want you to miss that in light of all of this description of enemies and all the opposition that you're going to face and the challenges of living in fellowship, John closes that idea set with this sense of hope. He says, and now, dear children, again, right, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we know that all who do what is right are God's children. So this past week, my wife and I had the privilege of being part of this Hispanic Bible study at Eddie Gonzalez's house. And uh, I had the chance during that time to teach on the Holy Spirit. And uh, so I was teaching, my wife was translating, and it was back and forth. And it was quite a cool experience. And then afterwards, uh, for those of you who have been in Bible studies that I lead, I like to have some discussion. And so I just asked just a few questions. And one of the questions that got fired back at me was an interesting one. One of the members asked, why would I want to live for eternity? And I was stumped. I didn't have a great answer. I responded, but I didn't have a great answer. And it turns out it didn't matter anyway, because that's not really what he was asking. There's something lost in translation, right? But it's stuck in my head, this idea, right? Why would I want to live for eternity? And the challenge was, I believe I believe for a very long time, right, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men, and why would we ever choose what is over what God promises us? That just was hard to reconcile in my mind, right? Why would we ever choose to be satisfied with what is rather than with what God promises us? And I think John feels the same way. That's the idea he's communicating here at the end. And so he's closing this discourse on enemies and antichrist with hope. And the hope message he is sharing is that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is returning, and it's not going to be all that far away. These enemies that you face, all of them will be defeated on the day that Christ returns. And on that day, you and I and Christ, we will be vindicated, right? Just like Joseph Lister, Martin Luther King Jr., Henry Ford, Susan B. Anthony, all the different pioneers who've gone on in the past, they have been vindicated. Their work has been validated because we look back and say they were right. And if you imagine that they've been vindicated, how much more so will Jesus be vindicated on the day that he returns and silences all the fools who are proclaiming some other truth? And on that day of vindication... When Christ returns in glory, we will be swept up in his glory as well. And we will meet the faithful Christians of the past, those apostles and first witnesses as well. And we will all realize that at that time, we really are one fellowship. We're all, each and every one of us, 
full and equal parts of God's family. That is our hope, secured in Christ, unshakable.